Hi, I'm Sam Fesich from the EduMagic Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. everyone and welcome to the new year and the first episode of the reimagined schools podcast for 2020 i'm your host greg goins we're ready to roll into season three now of the reimagined schools podcast and i want to begin by thanking all of our loyal listeners for your love and support over these three amazing years as we've worked hard together to create better schools for kids have a very exciting announcement for 2020 this will be the first time in our three-year history that we're going to open it up to sponsorships for the podcast. So if you are a startup company, an education organization, maybe you just want to advertise an upcoming conference, or maybe you have a product that you want to promote with professional educators. All you have to do is hit me up via email at drgreggoins at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at drgreggoins. So connect with me and we can talk about how you can customize your very own 30 or 60 second spot right here on the Reimagined Schools podcast. Very excited to kick off 2020 with another incredible guest as I welcome in author and internationally acclaimed speaker, Will Richardson, who specializes in the school change process. Will has worked with educators now in 20 different countries. His website, change.school, is a great resource to help find inspiration to reimagine schools throughout K-12 education. Will is also the founder of the Modern Learners online community that now has close to 1,500 participants. You can join the group at modernlearners.community. As you head back to school in January, I hope you can share this episode with your colleagues and building administrators, and be sure to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcast. My conversation with Will Richardson begins right now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is a former English teacher who's now an internationally acclaimed speaker and author on educational technology. He's presented in more than 20 countries. A big welcome to Will Richardson. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for having me today. Appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for being here. I followed your work for a long time. Uh, You're the author of six books, including Why School, which is the best-selling TED book of all time. Uh, you've given three wonderful TEDx talks that uh, I reference a lot in the courses that I teach at Georgetown College. So uh, just tell me how, whenever you go out and speak, what's, what's the primary question that you get and what's the big picture for you? Well, uh, I, the primary question that I ask, if I could start with that, is why, why do we continue to do so many things in schools that don't really make a lot of common sense? Um, I think that you know we're at a moment in time where learning and our ability to learn is exploding and we have more opportunities to connect and create and communicate and do all sorts of interesting things these days in a learning context that schools really haven't kept up with in large measure. And uh, that uh, my message is, or my question is basically around that, you know, schools were built for a different time and we need to ask some, some bigger questions these days about what our value is in a world where 
so much is changing so quickly. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty interesting conversation for a lot of people. It's a challenging one for a lot of people who uh, really want to think about how we tweak the system to make it better. And I think I'm trying to push them to, you know, as your podcast suggests, reimagine it um, to really think a little bit more about how it could be different, not just better. And one of the things you talk about that, that really hits home with me is this idea that schools really aren't built for learning. Uh, you make the argument that kids learn more outside of the school than they do inside the four walls of the traditional uh, school classroom. And, you know, it's, it's a sad reality that kids have a lot of times greater Internet access at the local McDonald's with the free Wi-Fi uh, than they do at some of their schools who lock it down and won't even let them use their mobile device. Well, the internet has definitely changed things. I mean, it is, I think, the uh, the impetus for this conversation, um, to be honest with you, because like you said, you know, if, if you have access, and I mean, most kids do these days, there are still um, a fairly significant number of kids who don't, and I think we have to figure out how to get them access. But certainly the kids that have it and who are using it are doing some pretty interesting things with it. And uh, it's changing the nature of their ability to learn. I, you know, I, I, I want to make the point though that it's not just all about technology. I mean, um, you know, the ways that people have learned throughout history have been built around passion and interest and relevance and actual purpose. You know, all those types of things. So this isn't new in terms of of looking at learning and asking. Um, why isn't that type of learning or why aren't those conditions present in schools? Um, you know, because that's the way we all learn in, in the real world. So um, that piece of it isn't new, but the technology definitely adds a layer, I think, of both uh, power and urgency to the conversation because we can do things today that are pretty incredible. And I see kids doing pretty incredible learning all the time using the technologies that they're carrying around in their pockets. And those those opportunities or those experiences usually aren't reflected in classrooms at the scale that we need them to be. Yeah. And I, I hear you talk a lot about uh, just learning in general and how that has changed. You think about something like YouTube. Uh, if you want to learn how to play the guitar, you watch a series of YouTube videos. If you can learn a foreign language on, uh, on YouTube videos. So, I mean, really anything you want is right there at your fingertips. And if that's the case, uh, you know, why do we actually have to go to school at a designated time, designated place uh, with kids of all the same age to listen to the teacher, the expert in the room, impart all that great wisdom upon us when we have it right there uh, at our disposal anytime we want it? Well, a lot of the reason we have to do that or kids have to do that is just because that's the script, right? And um, that's not going to change. I mean, I think you would agree that we're in the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're, we're still going to send kids to school who have to be there for a certain amount of time and, you know, have, have a certain experience there. But I, I do think that experience piece of it is where we need to try to re reimagine it, to paint a different picture around that. Because I, I, I think schools are incredibly valuable today, but I think the, the value is changing. Um, it's not, the value is not where you go to learn algebra or to learn the stuff. The, the school is where you go to learn how to be a learner and to take advantage of all the access that you have and all the opportunities that you have when you leave the building. And the only way that you do that, I think, is to create conditions, again, where Kids have freedom and agency to pursue things on their own terms. That doesn't mean we throw out all the standards. It doesn't mean we throw out all of our objectives or we just dump the curriculum, but it means we rethink it. We have a different relationship with all that stuff. And it's really 
led by the kids. And we are there as coaches, as people who connect our stuff to their interests and their passions, all in the service of developing them as learners first, and then um, you know having information and knowledge second. It's important to have knowledge. It's important, obviously, to to bring that to the world, but that's not the primary function of schools today. It just can't be because we can't teach all the knowledge to begin with. And the stuff that we're choosing to, to teach um, may not be what's relevant for kids to learn and to know um, moving into their futures. They're going to have to decide how to do that and we can help them with that. And I know a big piece of, um, of your presentation when you go out and talk with folks is to to really kind of close your eyes and think about what learning is or what it should be. And, and there's this huge disconnect between what people actually believe and what we typically practice in schools. Well, one of the most stunning things for me, and as you mentioned in the intro, I taught for a long time. I was in a public school for 22 years. And for the last 15 years, I've pretty much been on the road talking to various audiences around the world, like you said. And one of the most stunning things has been that when I ask people to define learning, they struggle. <laughs> they, they kind of don't have a very coherent answer to that question. And um, at first I thought it was just, you know, well, maybe they just haven't thought about it very much, but it's a, very, it's a difficult thing to do in the context of school. And I think one of the reasons that it is difficult is because learning in school doesn't look like learning in real life. And um, so we measure learning in school by giving kids grades, by having them take tests, by um, you know, trying to quantify that, that learning piece of it. Whereas we all know that much of learning is, is not quantifiable. Um, it's not something you can just you know, use a number to, to give it a number to assess it or whatever else. So when you start talking about learning in that context, people struggle with it because they don't think about it that way in classrooms. They really don't. Um, you know, my friend Gary Steger, who actually I was, uh, I did a couple of workshops with this week. Um, he has a great quote where he says, you know, where schools get in trouble is when they don't know what they believe, when they don't say what they believe, and when they don't live what they believe. And I really think that um, most schools don't know what they believe when it comes to learning, at least in terms of a community-wide understanding of that, some coherent articulation of what that means in this school community. And so what happens is the same thing that happened to my kids when they were in school. And that is they'd go to block one and they'd have to figure out how that teacher defined learning. Then they go to block two and they'd have to figure it out all over again. And then you go to block three and it'd be something different again. And so school becomes kind of a game. It becomes how do I figure out how to succeed in whatever context I find myself in rather than this kind of collective effort on the part of everyone in the community to pursue one articulation of what learning is and really living that definition so that we're learning as teachers and as adults in the system, as parents and as students. You know, it's just more of a learning culture and community than it is this isolated event in classrooms. And with this traditional model or game of school, if you will, that, that we're still entrenched in, entrenched in, you know, the status quo of, of memorization and retention, um, you know, I've also heard you say that it's just a sad reality that a lot of what we learn in school, we forget because it's not something that is passionate uh, or relevant in our life in terms of what we want to learn. Uh, you referenced your kids. Uh, you have a son that plays Division One college basketball at Colgate, and I I've heard you say that he learned more about math just through his interest in basketball than he actually did sitting in a math classroom. 
Well, certainly about statistics. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and certainly a lot of physics, although I, know, I don't know that that was explicit, but implicitly he learned a lot about physics. He learned a lot about arc, learned a lot about speed and all those types of things when it comes to navigating those intricacies that happen in, you know, in a basketball game that's moving at, at, at usually a pretty fast pace and you have to make decisions very quickly. And, and so, I mean, some of that is, is just kind of, um, like I said, implicit learning. But, but then again, when you think about, I'd, I'd almost defy anyone sitting down and thinking about where they learned what they've learned in order to do the jobs that they're doing and not coming to the conclusion that they learned the vast majority of that on the job, vast majority of that implicitly, that very little of the explicit learning that happened in schools and certainly around content knowledge um, actually becomes useful in, in your day-to-day work. You learn it on the job. So um, it is, again, this idea that you know, so much of, of the school experience is a construct and it's one that doesn't really fit to the way that things happen in the real world. And again, this isn't new. Dewey was saying this a hundred years ago, Montessori and Reggio and, and all sorts of people who have thought and, and written and are much smarter about the idea of learning than I am have been saying forever that school has to be more like real life. It, it can't be this kind of, uh, you know, constructed experience that um, we put all kids through in the same way, pretty much on the same day, you know, all that kind of thing. So it's a challenge right now because it it is a push against the way that we normally think about that experience. You know, there are a lot of folks out there uh, often considered outliers that are trying to make a shift and do things differently. And, And when you hear of folks doing things like genius hour at the elementary school level or maybe 20% time innovation coursework at, at the higher grade levels. What are your initial thoughts about those type of things? Well, I mean, I mean, I think they're great. Makerspaces, right, is another example of this that um, is kind of top of mind because, again, of the work I've been doing with Gary. But um, I, I think they're great. If, if you can only find an hour a week to give kids more agency and choice and freedom, then give them an hour a week, right? And I don't want to in any way suggest that that's not a good thing. But having said that, <laughs> I mean, when I go and talk to teachers about Genius Hour, um, mostly what I hear is how amazing it is, how their kids are doing these great projects, they're, um, they're totally engaged, they're, you know, changing the community, whatever else. And, and very rarely do I hear people go, yeah, Genius Hour was just like total failure, that it just didn't work, right? <laughs> because kids love that free time to pursue things that they're interested in, which always leads me to my little throwaway laugh line which is, you know, if genius hour is so amazing, then why not just have curriculum hour and make the rest of it genius, right? <laughs> I mean, that would seem to make sense. And, and it's the same thing with like a maker space. So uh, we actually were at a school outside of DC yesterday where they had this amazing, beautiful work, uh, maker space and, and classes were coming in there and it was kind of a library type of setup where, kid, where teachers could schedule in, which is great. And it was, they were doing some really great stuff. But again, when we talked about the stories of learning that were happening in there as compared to the stories of learning that were happening in classrooms, they were two different, two different narratives. And so making, if you really believe that making is a great way to learn, why just make it a space? You know? Why not make it a stance? Why not take that as a pedagogical stance and try to replicate that through the classroom? So I'm all for people trying things and in starting in small ways to kind of acclimate to how those things are different. 
but that's not enough. Those, those things aren't boxes to check. Those things are ways of beginning a larger conversation, creating a different narrative, a different experience that then scales out to the entire school or uh, the school community. And I've also heard you talk about learning in a sticky way, learning that stays with the student uh, on a long-term basis. And that kind of goes with, uh, you know, what we're just talking about there with these different, if Genius Hour is so fantastic, why don't we just do it all day, every day? Yeah. And, and you know, again, that's the, um, uh, that's not realistic, you know what I'm saying? We can't do genius hour all day, every day. I get it. Not in the current, not in the current environment. That's not going to happen, but it'd be nice to kind of aspire toward that. And, you know, learning is, is pretty simple. If you don't use it, you lose it. And, and so it is about experience. It is about doing things. Um, it goes back again to Piaget that knowledge is the consequence of experience. And so it's not, it's not enough to sit in a classroom and be told these are the things that you should know. Um, it really is about um, being in classrooms where we can pursue our own inquiry, that things around things or questions that are interesting or matter to us, and then actually apply the knowledge that we gain as we go through trying to answer those questions. And um, that's the only way it sticks. Uh, that's the only way. Uh, and we all know this, by the way, because we've forgotten 98% of what we learned in high school because we never applied it. We never really used it in any particular way. You know, I have a lot of guests come on uh, the podcast and talk with me, and, and there are so many wonderful things going on. But uh, people are talking about design thinking, deeper learning, project-based learning, uh, competency-based instruction. And, I mean, there's a whole plethora of, of these things that are happening, and, and a lot of them are very good. But what we don't talk about enough is how the role of the teacher has changed and I hate it when people talk about soft skills. I hate it when they talk about 21st century learning. But there has to be a fundamental shift in how uh, what the teacher's role is in the classroom. Well, one of my books was titled From Master Teacher to Master Learner. And I really believe that that somewhat, at least, encompasses, encompasses the shift, right? That um, we have to be learners first. We have to be experts at learning today, not necessarily experts at subject matter. It helps to have subject matter expertise. As long as we're going to divide subjects up into disciplines and carve them out that way, then sure, we need to have some, some domain expertise. But ultimately, if we are not experts at learning, especially in a modern context, right, if we're not really good at using the tools that we have available to us today, to pursue learning on our own terms, to be literate in those ways. And this is a struggle right now for, for many, not just educators, but for people in general. I mean, you look at all the things that are happening with fake news and you hear all the stories about um, algorithms driving all sorts of information to us because it's kind of trying to figure out what it is that we want or need. It's confirming our bias. I mean, it's really complex right now. If we as educators don't have our, our practice wrapped around that as learners, then that's problematic because we need to be able to model learning in a very deep sense to the kids who are in our classrooms, and we need to be able to coach them to become great learners as well. So to me, that's the shift more than anything else. Um, we have to, I think, step up, step back from, but not completely divorce ourselves from content and knowledge. But we do have to make our primary function creating, again, these conditions and opportunities in classrooms where we're all learning, right? Asking questions that we ourselves don't know the answers to, and then kind of shouldering up next to kids and going through the process of learning that stuff with them. 
um, allowing them to co-collaborate on curriculum, um, allowing them, as in some schools that I've seen recently, to create their own coursework um, and, and being okay with that, kind of stepping back and say, yeah, okay, I don't know that much about what it is you want to learn, but I know a lot about learning. And I know a lot about how I can help you become really, um, really an expert or have mastery around that pursuit that you've identified because I can, I can help you in terms of how to learn it. So that to me is the big shift. And I think another thing that, that we're talking more and more about is the future of work uh, for this, you know, millennials, Generation Z, and, and what that looks like and how we can prepare them. And of course, there's a lot of discussion about the four C's. But when you think about essential skills for those kids entering this uncertain future of, of work, what are the things that really kind of jump off the page at you? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that kids need to be able to communicate in a variety of different forms right now. Um, that's number one. They have, to, they have to be able to articulate ideas and communicate them in writing, in speaking, uh, through the use of multimedia, all those types of things. So um, that's going to be crucial. They need to be storytellers in those contexts, uh, without a doubt. Um, I think obviously, you know, all the C words that are out there, um, you know, they're, they're going to have to learn how to collaborate with, with others from various, uh, diverse ethnic backgrounds and, and, uh, geographic backgrounds. I think global competencies are huge right now. Um, developing the empathy to understand others in the context in which they live and, um, making sure that, uh, that we're, you know, accepting them on their own terms and not, you know, assigning some types of bias or, or even, um, you know, just any, anything like that, but understanding how complex cultures are and, and being able to navigate those spaces, that's going to be cr crucial because um, we are more and more connected to people from around the world. I mean, I was on a Zoom call last week with someone from Nepal, someone from Thailand, you know, it, it's crazy when you think about how easy it is for us to do work with one another in all parts of the world right now. Um, and then I just, I think they're going to just need to maintain their curiosity and love of learning um, in a world where we have so much available to us, so many teachers, so many technologies, um, so much uh, content and information. Um, if we're not learners, if we're not taking advantage of all of that, uh, then that's, you know, that's kind of sad, actually. <laughs> I mean, this is the greatest moment to be a learner ever. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that. And so if we don't have a disposition toward learning, that's like, yeah, I want to learn everything I can as often as I can, wherever I am, that type of thing. Um, and, and by the way, no matter what the future of work holds, uh, it's going to be constantly changing. People are going to need to be constantly upskilling or changing their skills. And that means they're going to need to be learners there. And, and they're not going to be, I don't think corporations are going to spend as much on training uh, in a world where you can train yourself. I think the expectation is going to be, well, here are the skills that you need for this job, or here's how the job is changing. Go figure it out. Go learn it. Go, go get yourself prepared for it. And if people are waiting to be told, you know, what to learn, when to learn it, how to learn it, and how they're going to be assessed on it, good luck to them. So, you know, that's, a, I, I think, a crucial disposition to have and to make sure our kids have moving forward. Yeah, and, you know, it's also in a lot of ways generational because I think about working with kids and I think about working with adult learners. And kids just, you know, if they're going to learn how to play a new game, they just fire it up and they figure it out. Teachers want a professional development day. Right. Uh, I, re I remember as a school superintendent, we rolled out uh, a school district hashtag 
and everyone, everyone in my district wanted to have a full PD day on how to use Twitter. And I said, guys, you can, we can do that in 10 minutes. Right. Uh, just, you know, set up an account and get going. <laughs> but that's just a, I think that's just a generational shift. And uh, I, I think as, as we have younger teachers, uh, you know, in the classroom, maybe that's going to change. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so, you know, the Twitter thing is interesting, too, because you don't even need 10 minutes. You, you just say, go learn it. You know, you go figure it out. Right. Because that's not something that we want to spend time teaching you when you can go and figure that out on your own. But I, I will say and, and this is no disrespect to teachers or educators, because it is a different narrative, obviously. But I also think it's cultural. I think that in many cases, schools perpetuate that kind of dependence in both teachers and students. I mean, certainly in classrooms, we, we perpetuate that kind of dependence when we say, when, when kids know that I'm the one as the teacher who owns your grade, you're gonna be, I'm going to give you that grade. You're dependent on me in many cases to figure out what it is that you need to learn and how you're gonna be successful at it, all that type of stuff. So it's not surprising that we kind of set up those same conditions when we talk about professional development. Um, you know, we, we're gonna deliver professional development to you. Um, and that's probably culturally not the best way to reimagine the role of teachers in, in the classroom. I love, um, you know, the unconferences that have sprung up all over the place where um, teachers just come together and they figure out what is it they want to learn. And then they kind of, you know, they kind of collaborate and they group up and they go and learn that stuff. And to me, that's a much more effective way of doing PD than to hire someone to come in because look there's hardly anything that um someone who comes in and does pd knows that the collective wisdom of the crowd doesn't already know right you know what i'm saying right you're not going to have someone come in and teach twitter because there's 20 people in the crowd who already know how to do that and so they could they could set that kind of thing up i think i think professional development or professional learning time really needs to be situated in, in big questions right now. You know, like what is learning? What is our value? What, is the, what, what do we want our kids to be able to do when they leave us? How is that different from what it used to be? And, you know, how do we create conditions and how do we communicate a new kind of vision of learning to all of our constituencies? Because one of the hardest parts is obviously when it comes to change is building the capacity of everybody within the community to understand why it's happening and what it looks like. And then, you know, being comfortable in some process that goes that way. So there's a lot we need PD time for and professional learning time for, but it's not, I don't think much of what we used to use it for. Um, it has to be more about big ideas, big questions, really those questions that make us feel uncomfortable and giving us the space to, to um, just interrogate those in some powerful ways. And you know, there aren't many guarantees in life, but folks, I can guarantee you if you buy your child a, any type of video game for Christmas, they're not going to open that and ask when the workshop's going to be. <laughs> exactly right. So they'll, they'll have it figured out, you know, within 10 exactly. or 15 minutes. So it's amazing, uh, you know, the capacity that kids have to, to use those digital tools. I, I think the other big piece of this, and this is a great conversation, again, my guest is Will Richardson, you want to follow him on Twitter at WillRich45. Uh, WillRichardson.com is the website. Also want to go to Change.School, which is a great website. We're going to give Will a chance to talk about that, as well as his uh, Modern Learners Network. But another huge piece to this is the assessment piece. And we, we talk a lot about rethinking grading and assessment. I've heard you say that uh, grading and assessment is harmful to kids. Well, it abs absolutely is. I mean, it's a sorting mechanism, first and foremost. 
And as much as we want to think that kids aren't um, aren't in some way damaged by being sorted around, you know, how smart they are or how, how much their grade reflects how smart they are. Um, we're just fooling ourselves. I mean, I was at Thanksgiving dinner with my family and, and, uh, there was a girl who was, uh, getting ready to go to college. She's a junior and she's thinking about going to college, you know, a year from now. And, um, you know, she said, well, we were talking about schools and she goes, yeah, I can't get in there cause I'm not that smart. And I said, well, why, why would you say you're not that smart? She goes, well, I only have a 4.3 out of a 5.0. Right. And I just said, that's, <laughs> this is like, this is what we do to children. You know, we make them, we make them self-reflect as a number or as a letter or whatever else when it comes to talking about their own, um, their own grade or their own, uh, um, intelligence. So, um, and that, and Alfie Cohn has written extensively about the damage that grades do. So here's the good news. Grades are going away. Full stop. Grades are going away. Now, it may not be in the next five years or 10 years, but I would almost bet within 20 years, grades are gone because they don't, they don't do great things for kids, number one. They don't reflect learning. They don't, they're not an accurate assessment of what kids have actually learned. And um, there are better ways now. Um, you look at mastery.org. If you haven't gone to mastery.org, if you haven't figured out what the Mastery Transcript Consortium is doing, um, there are about 400 some odd schools from around the world right now who have said to colleges, and these are high flyers, right? These are some of the best independent public schools that you'll find. And they've said to colleges, we're going to send our kids to your schools in the next two years with transcripts that have no numbers on them because we think numbers are stupid. And we also think there's strength in our numbers to say collectively, we believe this. And so you're going to have to adjust to that. You're going to have to figure out, Mr. Admissions Officer, Ms., you know, the admissions person, how to deal with a transcript that doesn't have any numbers. And they've been going back and forth. I just read an update um, yesterday, in fact, and they're really close. They're starting to pilot these now in schools. Admissions officers are happy. Um, kids are happy. Grades are going away. So the sooner we get on board that train, the better for all concerned. Um, because basically, uh, it just adds a lot of stress and it makes school a game. I, I, in 22 years of teaching, I can count on one hand the number of times kids came up, or maybe two hands, kids came up to me and said, hey, Mr. R, that was really interesting. What can I do to learn more about that? As opposed to, I would need the entire city of New York, you know, New York's hands and feet to count the number of times that kids came up and said, hey, Mr. R, I got an 83. What can I do to get two more points to get the B? Because that's what it was about at the end of the day. And by the way, if there are parents listening, ask yourselves, how do you measure your kids in school? How do you understand whether or not they are succeeding or not? And in almost every case, it's going into the parent portal and looking at the grades, which really reflect nothing about how kids are learning in, for the long term. So, yeah, that's the good news. Grades are going away. I'm very happy about that. I sleep better at night now knowing that. So. Well, that is good news, and I hope <laughs> I'm around long enough to see it because it's going to be a happy day. Uh, as we kind of close up the conversation, again, thanks for taking the time. Uh, you know, you're just doing some wonderful things. Tell us a little bit about Change School and uh, the Modern Learners Network. Well, appreciate the time. So Change School is at change.school. That's the uh, web address. It's, a, it's an eight-week, um, pretty intensive dive into the change process for schools. And um, honestly, it's not for the faint of heart. We've had... Uh, nine cohorts of people go through it. And it's really intensive. We've had about 400 people from around the world who have experienced that. 
Um, it's a combination of uh, online work in the community in terms of resources and some, we call them explorations, but it's also um, live events. We do a Zoom event with our cohorts once a week where we engage in some high level topics, but then we have coaching sessions throughout where that are just drop in. And to be honest with you, Greg, I think that uh, the best work that I've done in the last 15 years has been through Change School and the um, and the coaching time. Um, I've just found that to be extremely powerful in terms of helping people and me learn more about um, you know what's happening in schools and how we can begin to to think about changing them. So um, it's a it's a it's a really I think powerful experience. Most of our Participants will tell you that as well. We have over, I think, 50 testimonials on our site. So um, they are uh, um, they are, are changed in, over the long term by that work. Um, we're going to run two change goals. We decided to cut it back a little bit. We're going to run two change goals next year, and we'll have the dates for those up. Um, after the first, but that's all at change.school. And then the modernlearners.com is where you'll find our podcasts, our blog posts, uh, white papers, all sorts of information about our labs, uh, like the one I was just doing with Gary. We have another one coming up in Atlanta. Um, the Big Questions Institute um, with Homa Tavanger and I um, in January. So um, lots of stuff going on there. And then our Modern Learners community is where we have now over, I think, 1,400 people who are members where we're doing book studies, we're doing coaching sessions, we have uh, guest speakers and all sorts of good stuff going on in there too. So that's another place that you can find our work. And what's your 2020 look like? I'm assuming you're going to be on the road soon. Um, so, you know, I know I'm not on the road much during basketball season, right? Right. <laughs> well, I am on the road, but I'm not on the educational speaking road. Um, it's just, uh, it's just been a real treat to be able to go and, and see a lot of Tucker's games. And I know that's going to go so fast that I just don't want to miss it. So um, my actual, my traveling, my travel schedule is, uh, is, has been cut back um, a fair amount for next year, which is fine. But uh, I am going to run a couple uh, masterminds at the beginning of the year um, and also uh, try to ramp up uh, coaching sessions, uh, coaching relationships with schools and leaders. And then we'll be running labs throughout the year um, in various places around the country. And, and uh, we should have that schedule pretty much solidified after the first. Well, happy holidays to you and, uh, you know, enjoy a little downtime with the family and, you know, cheer on uh, Colgate basketball. Hopefully they'll make a deep run in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, you know, sorry, I'll, I'll apologize in advance when they beat Kentucky um, in that in, <laughs> somewhere in there. But appreciate the time, Greg. You have a happy holiday as well. You too. Again, uh, Will Richardson's the guest. Uh, follow him on Twitter at WillRich45. Check out those websites, Change.School and uh, the Modern Learners Network. So that's a wrap again for this episode, folks. As always, thanks for listening. And always do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.